Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com. IFSTA is dedicated to advancing firefighting techniques and safety through the creation of our manuals, instructor resources, and student study materials. Our high-quality, technically accurate, and affordable training content has made us a fire service leader. Visit us at ifsta.org for more information. All right, so let's start this off uh, real quick. Uh, welcome everybody in to our podcast. Super excited about this. We've been kind of, uh, we've been touching on this subject here and there with some, uh, with some of our other shows, but we uh, sat down and we spoke with David, we spoke with fire engineering and felt like we really needed to kind of get a little bit deeper into the subject matter on uh, mid-rise mayhem and the challenges we all face with these mid-rise buildings that are cropping up in every part of the United States, in every small town, big city, uh, middle America, everybody's starting to see these buildings. And we've kind of dialed in on what we feel you can go out today. If you're at work today, listen to this, you can go out today and probably start applying some of these uh, practices to be better prepared and ready so when you do have a fire in one of these structures, it's going to give you a way advantage and give you a head start on that fire. So let me start with this thing. We'll start with introductions, as we always do. Uh, my name is Todd Edwards. I have over way too many years in the fire service. Uh, <laughs> uh, retired from the city of Atlanta and very fortunate, very blessed to get to know, work with, and teach alongside our all three of our uh, panel tonight. And uh, just very excited about what we have upcoming um, with this program on Mid-Rise and all the other things we have going on right now. So my co-host, Captain Rowett, go ahead, sir. Uh, Anthony Rowett, uh, Captain with Mobile Fire Rescue in Mobile, Alabama. 18 years in the fire service, 15 with the city of Mobile. Um, get to travel around with these guys here a lot. And this is a topic we've all been trying to really get into a lot and start spreading a lot of word about. So I think this is going to be really good. A good show that gets a lot of information out to people. Definitely. Uh, let's start with uh, our Chicago brother. Go ahead, Jimmy. Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for having me, Ted. Look forward to uh, what we're going to discuss here. Uh, 29 years on CFD. Can you believe it? Wow. Uh, it goes by very quick. Um, the captain over at Engine 43, which is kind of like a mid-rise mecca, of what we're going to discuss today they're popping up everywhere and i think what you said too todd it's just not a big urban thing mid-rises are going across everywhere in america right now and i've noticed in, in doing this teaching and that is that the fire service in general really doesn't have a plan for these buildings and yet they're also uh stricken i would probably say with with minimal manpower in trying to face complicated buildings with you know, X amount of people. It's your snapshot of everyday, average America firefighting. Uh, not enough people. So I look forward to diving into this today, and uh, I know all you have. Looking forward to it, Todd. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. Perfect. And last but definitely not least, go ahead, LP. <laughs> Todd, 
What's up, Todd? What's up, guys? Uh, Steve Robertson, Lieutenant Columbus, Ohio Division of Firework at Engine 18. Uh, 31 years in Columbus, 34 full-time in the fire service. Um, you know, this this topic is near and dear to me because, you know, as we say, we travel and we see. And, and, and as far as to touch on what Jimmy said, to kind of get into it just for a second is they're everywhere. Uh, I was in Broken Bow, Oklahoma this last weekend. And guess what? They're like, we don't have mid-rises. We don't have mid-rises. We're leaving Broken Bow. Guess what I saw? Mid-rises. Four <laughs> mid-rises. Four of them. This is a town of two, 3,000 people. And there was four mid-rises under construction as we said that, right? So it's a thing. It's a thing that's going everywhere. And, you know, I, I, I think we, the public is going to expect us to do something. Todd, you say it all the time. What do you say? The fire don't yeah, care. Yeah, the fire does not care. Right? The fire don't care. So guess what? The public's going to be standing there when you pull in with your three people. And they're going to have their phones out and they're going to be videoing you. And what are you going to do right yes. now? Well, we got to wait on two more engines that are six to eight minutes away. What are you going right. to do right now? And, and that's what we're looking to dive into and hopefully enlighten some folks. And uh, just if nothing, I'll spark a conversation. Definitely, one hundred percent. So I wanted let's I want to start off and, and just start with the bare bones basic when we talk about uh, the definition of a of a mid rise building because where some people may see a building and not deem it as a mid rise, we want to make sure we have that kind of a a firm definition in play, and it doesn't always have to follow the NFPA standards. But departments, and Jimmy already said it, that are staffing challenged, even something when we start getting that fourth floor fire, that fifth floor fire, we are running into new challenges, and we've got to have tactics and strategies that match up with those challenges. So let me start with um, let me start with uh, Jimmy. How does Chicago Fire, or in your eyes and your travels, Jimmy, are you guys saying this is a mid-rise, this is a low-rise, this is a high-rise? Todd, that's a great question. And, and to give you a good answer here is that I'm, I'm going to talk about like the contemporary mid-rises, kind of like that are popping up, what Steve said. Not your older generation of, of multi-dwellings, which are ordinary constructed. Those can get four to five stories, too. I want to focus on these new ones. Uh, that are popping up. So we use, or at least we use a building that is wider than it is taller. And you're going to find that suite area about four to seven stories. Remember, after seven stories, you start getting into the heights or category of a true high-rise building, which is 75 feet or greater. And then the provisions for high-rise, when we look at codes, building codes, uh, life safety codes, right at a high-rise mark, then they start changing on you. When you go lower on a high-rise, below 75 feet, a lot of the provisions are not there as you would see in a high-rise. So a really good snapshot is that you're going to have three to seven stories, either standpipe supported, depending on the authority having jurisdiction, or you're not. And then that, that's where you need to be very creative and your hose deployment strategies in these buildings, especially when you got to go up in elevation. Yeah, and we're and we're definitely going to uh, hit on some uh, some possibly some best practices for guys to get out and start looking at. What about for uh, Columbus, Steve? Do you guys have anything well defined, or is it? Yeah, not really, Todd. This is but but this is something that's happening. We're the third fastest growing city in America right now, and um, 
I, I, you know, you guys know what most folks know. I work in a very unique district, a very low income area. And then I cross the freeway and I'm on the campus of the Ohio State University. So off campus housing. Right now, there's 10 or 12 sky cranes right now in the campus area that are building these buildings. And most of these are exactly what uh, Captain Davis said. Jimmy, you hit it right on the head where they're three to seven stories. And what we're seeing even more of now with, with everything going vertical, that parking is an issue, we're actually seeing three-story parking garages being built and four stories of apartments above that. Well, the problem with that is now they're putting charging stations on the third floor of the parking garage. <laughs> yeah. Because everybody's smarter than the fire department, right? Everybody's smarter than us. We could scream bloody murder, but it's all about that. And and that's going to be an issue. It may not be for me. I'll probably be retired before it happens, but it's going to be an issue down the road. So we're seeing what Jimmy's saying, the old school taxpayer, per se, where we have, you know, multi-unit businesses underneath, four to six stories of apartments above it. And then we're also seeing the opposite, where we're seeing parking garages underneath. And four to six stories above. So, so we're in the same boat, usually three to seven. Um, but we're seeing 13R. They're all 13 residential. Common areas are sprinkler. Great. There's no FDC. There's no FDC in a lot of these, right? So whatever sprinklers you get off the residential sprinkler system is what you can have. The void spaces are not sprinkler. My brother, God love him, Captain Bill Gustin, and I were having a conversation. We dealt with, especially us three old guys, Balloon frame construction. We chase balloon frames from the basement to the attic all the time to the knee walls. How many times do we do that, right? The younger generation is going to have the same problem. And Captain Gustin hit it on the head. He said, Stevie, these guys are going to have horizontal balloon frame construction. All of these floor I-beam trusses, there are no fire breaks. They are not sprinklered. They're going to have the same problem we had. They're just going to be chasing it horizontally in these I-beams. And, and I never thought of it that way. Captain Gustin hit it on the head again. It's going to be a thing down the road for sure. Definitely. Definitely. And um, I'm gonna, let, me, let me ask you that same question is, you know, because what's very unique about when we do this program, uh, it, it, it can't just be everybody's big city because all of us have that small town experience too so everybody understands that and mobile definitely is that in between city where it's a lot of old stuff and they're seeing new construction all intertwined together so what is mobile or how do you guys are looking at these buildings as well in mobile fire so like steve said we don't have anything necessarily just written in stone is this many floors to this many floors we typically say that three to six three to seven and then same as jimmy talked about we use that 75 foot mark because of the fact that changes the provisions and construction and changes the building so much. So basically we say anything from three, three stories to 75 feet tall and we go off the building uh, provisions in the code. Um, but typically, so it's three to six, three to seven is what we look at for this. Um, but we, we use that same thing that 75 feet makes it a, a true high rise because it changes the construction. So that's where we go to with that. And then we typically, we bottom it at, at three, at three floors. Though. So three to six, three to seven. Right. Okay, great. And so I think, and I know when people hear us say three stories, I want you to look at how, as you're listening to this or watching this, keep in mind, 
we are all the American Fire Service is fantastic at stretching to first floor and second floor fires. Once we start adding in that third turn or that next stairwell or that next bend in the hose, we don't drill on that enough to really be proficient at it. So one of our you know very first tip, and you're gonna hear me you do this a couple times a day. Tip one, go out and start looking at how many three, four, five, six, and seven story buildings you have, or maybe under construction. And it's not always gonna be medical office buildings. I know we always go, oh, the hospital's six stories or the uh, the doctor's office uh, on the campus is five stories. Start looking at these other ones that are really coming about. On the construction side, what what are you guys seeing the most in Columbus right now, Steve, from a construction standpoint? Type, are you seeing the type, parking deck yeah, and then wood frame uh, above? Yeah, they're all wood frame. And they may have a brick veneer on them, and that's about it. The biggest thing we're seeing that's going to be interesting, and, and we've got a couple we're getting ready to go through here in the next couple of weeks, but the one thing I'm seeing that I think is unique is the length of these hallways. Some of these hallways are 300, 350 feet long, right? So we're well beyond the pre-connect in a lot of these places. And yeah, and I don't want to quote the code, but I know it's something to over 200 or 250 feet. They have to have a hookup in the middle, right? That's great. That's outstanding. But they don't put freaking fire doors on either side of it. So it doesn't do me any good, <laughs> right? If I, if I had smoke doors or fire doors on either side of that hookup, I could go up the other side of a dirty hallway, hook up and make a push. That's not there. Now, the authority are having jurisdiction, right. I believe, can jump in there. But we're struggling with fighting the building department because we're growing so fast. They don't have time. Right? I mean, they don't have time to deal with us. Right. So this is the things you're, that I think go to the next step you're talking about, Tom. Yes, they're wood frame. Yes, they may be sprinklers. But you're talking residential sprinklers and it's not always there. And what's your plan B? What's your plan C? And and. I would say the United States Fire Service is very good at one and two story dwellings, right? You get beyond two to where I have to really start stretching up and thinking, how many links of hose am I going to need? What's the working length going to look like? Am I in the right stairwell to be able to reach it with the working length I have? Am I on five and maybe it's faster for me than doing an actual hookup? Is it faster to me to build my own standpipe to the fifth floor? And then go up to six via the via the attack stairwell. So I mean, that the main thing we're seeing is I beam floor trusses with wood frame. There everything's wood, everything's stick built, and we're seeing brick veneer on the on the outside of it that that makes it look pretty. Right. Uh, same thing for uh, is that is that what you guys are seeing in the Chicago area as well, Jimmy? But uh, yeah, Steve's pretty dialed about. in on that stuff. Same thing over here. Maybe that's common uh, with Midwest. Uh, but we're seeing this just to give you. I'm going to pause here. Just talk about what's happening with these mid rises, low rises, mid rises, high rises. When doing some of this research for the mid rise uh, program. Uh, about 40-something percent of, of the multi-dwellings that are being built right now are a mid-rise. 40 percent. If not, they, I think it's about 44 percent. The other 40 percent, if they're looking at those garden-style apartments, those things that are you know, anywhere from one to three stories. And then uh, astonishing, too, is that uh, only about 11 percent of, of multi-dwellings or buildings being built right now today. Or high rises, 
So this is what we're capturing, this, this big area of mid-rises. And when I talk and we examine the construction, I call it like a mix and match of everything. You'll have your podium construction, the, the type one building provisions, uh, parking garages, everything that's going to fall that's going to be fireproof and rating in type one. Everything going vertically beyond that is going to be a mix and match, or I call it hybrid. You may see some incorporation of some steel I-beams. Uh, you're going to see open web, uh, parallel uh, truss, and PGIs. Trusses, yeah. And I always say, you know, when these things burn down, because uh, the most vulnerable period of when they're building this or vulnerable to fire is during the construction phase. The only thing that's left is that you can see the enclosure of the type one stairwell. It's the only thing standing when these things burn down. So I call it a mix and match. And then a great question they ask, well, what do you, what do you call it? You call it a, a type one, do you call it a type five? You call it a type two because we have some of them that incorporate type two construction with steel bar joists and a, and a uh, uh, metal panned uh, floors that are being poured. So it's there's no rhyme or reason when we talk about consistency, there really isn't much, but it's a great idea to use that opportunity to go and look at these buildings. Gotta look at these buildings and walking in there during those fire is not the time to be doing it. I know you hit on the pre-planning, uh, Todd, but that's going to be your 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 ace. It's going to be your your trump card on this. Uh, knowing how these things are built, and Steve mentioned that too. These open the interstitial spaces, which Captain Gustin talks about. That's where the fire is going to occur. NFPA 13R provisions for the sprinkler code only allows you and buys you enough time to make an exit. That's it, period. Let me let me add one thing to that, Jimmy. I think you hit a great point when you said the three-story building. I can tell you right now in Broken Bow, those those ones we saw going up were three-story buildings, but there is nothing else in Broken Bow, Oklahoma, that I saw that is greater than two. So now this small fire department with good guys has a challenge ahead of them. They now have three, three-story buildings and, and they've never seen one, right? So this is not a Chicago problem, an Atlanta problem, a Columbus problem, a Mobile problem. This is a fire service problem that even though you think you don't have them, you probably got them or you're going to get them soon. So I think that's a very good point that when we hit three stories, anything above two, we need to start thinking tactically different. Good point. And, and Todd, I got to finish this last one too, is this is the question that I get asked a lot. Uh, from the outside and exterior, your windshield sides up, it's very deceiving because these buildings look like that they're totally either a type one or a type two constructed building. But in all essence, they are a wood frame, lightweight, hybrid building. Um, so how do you categorize, uh, categorize it? I say it, what is the material least resistive to fire? So call it that way. If it's a type five, then call it a type five uh, mid-rise building. Put the seed in their head. Even just saying that, we'll give them that Steve said different options and our approach and our tactics has got to be a little bit different especially when we start incorporating fire into void spaces. You'll be chasing this thing uh, around like you wouldn't believe. Um, I remember that fire in mid-rise that they had 
and uh, New Jersey. I think it was Edgewater. It started, uh, uh, you know, that they burned down so many units on there because they had fire was going uh, horizontally and vertically. So that's a really good, uh, a good case study to see how vulnerable that these buildings are to fire and our ability to stay ahead of it is somewhat compromised too. It's just moving too fast for us. So I, I want to make sure I, I want to I want to wheel back just a little bit because we just threw out uh, <laughs> we threw out a you chapter get of information you know in the, in the last two man. minutes. I swear to God, we did. <laughs> so I do want to go back to something that Steve said. And that's why I make notes on these long hallways. So here's here's a second tip I want to make sure we share. And go to your local hardware store and get the measurement wheel. Put the measurement wheel on your rigs. And either while you're on a medical alarm or alarm bell or whatever the case is, literally go and, and wheel out and measure the length of hallways, either from the stairwell, if you're doing a standard stretch or from a standpipe connection. And that will help build your pre-plan. I know we're, we're not getting deep into that just yet, but I wanted to make sure because Steve mentioned these long hallways and we're seeing them everywhere we go. It's five seconds. Hey, we're on this alarm. Let's measure out the hallways on the residential side, uh, uh, where our close connections are. And then that will immediately feed into where you're going to place apparatus as well. And that's something we'll, we'll kind of touch into. I know Steve will lose his mind if we don't talk about apparatus placement. So we got to make sure we hit that. But real quick, real quick, with that, Todd, to add with that, I and you saw it, I picked up this little laser measure for like 30 bucks on Amazon. And it literally fits in my pocket. Yes. I literally carry it in my pocket. And now I go to the elevator lobby, boom, I shoot the hallway. And the laser hits the end of the hallway and tells me how many links. It just makes it even faster. It's smaller. But, yes, I still have my wheel underneath my seat. Little, little, tiny. Yeah. And, and it's, look, you're on the medical. What do I need to do? Right? As a boss, I, I'd rather go major stuff. Yeah. Get that into the system. Those little nuggets that you can add onto your CAD system. This building is three lengths from the elevator lobby to the standpipe. That's a big deal. That's a big deal going in if you can look at your building and know, okay, it's in the right half. Here's the elevator. Here's the middle of the elevator lobby. I know it's two lengths to the lobby. We're good with three lengths. That's a big deal, right? So I can't stress that enough. It's a great point. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to dial back into that. I didn't want us to graze over that because when you uh, – all three of you have already said this. If we're preparing for the fire on the front end, we don't look real stupid on the back end when we pull up yeah. with three guys. And that's one of the things. And it's it's not just about the fire itself, but that feeds into how are we going to search? Where are we going to place the truck? Where are we going to place the first new engine? I need 30 seconds because that hits, that hits home with me for something. And I'm going to mention it for Brush. The firefighter rescue surveys out there. All that data. It, it's unbelievable data. And if you haven't looked at it, shame on you. Two to four minutes. If we make a grab in two to four minutes from time of arrival, 69% survival rate. That tells me one thing. We have to be damn good from the time we set the air brake until the time we get into that building. We have to be absolutely perfect outside. Take away the knowns. We know these things have to happen. We know we have an opportunity to get in those buildings and pre-plant. All of those known things, we have to be better than good at that. Have to be. 
because as soon as we cross that threshold, yes, we don't know. Uh-huh. We don't know. Hundred percent. And that's going to cost us time. So, got to be right. better yeah. than good at the stuff that we control. We don't control it inside. We do the best we can, but the stuff we can control, we have to be better than good. Right. And I want to just finish up that on that when we're talking about some of this construction thing, especially when you get down here in the southeastern part of the country, what I'm seeing in the metro Atlanta area, and I'm talking about huge areas that have had nothing but single family dwellings for the last hundred years are now seeing building after building after building all going vertical, four story um apartment buildings below grade uh where it's below grade on one floor and then three above that and i wanted to bring row ed in on this our biggest thing we're seeing is that podium in this area of the country where it's going to be a type one and it's all commercial your your mom and pop grocery store the beauty salon and then five stories of wood above that what about in the mobile and that alabama region uh row uh, Florida and those areas that you're most traveled in right now? Yeah, um, a lot like Steve and uh, Jimmy were saying, we deal with a lot of the type uh, the type five. It's everything except the stairs and the elevators would. Um, a lot of that being with that podium construction, uh, putting that parking garage underneath, saving space. Specifically to my run area, we're also dealing with the revitalization of downtown where it went from vacant to they put a lot of money in. So they're taking a lot of the old uh, warehouses, old buildings, and old commercial buildings and renovating them into lofts. So we're also dealing with that part. But as far as new construction in the mid-rise range, it's mainly what they're talking about with all wood or the podium construction. So you could absolutely be dealing with heavy timber. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's our, and that's, and we've got a, down actually we're close to where I live. It's called the brewery district. It was old breweries and they've done the same thing. Yep. They've turned all of these old factories into loft style housing. So, so don't get caught up. We've talked a lot about new construction. It goes back to what Todd just said. We've got to get in the buildings to really know what we're dealing with and knowing your district because you're, you're talking heavy timber. I've got heavy timber close to where I live, not my district, but the, the uh, Todd, you've been there yes, down on the old brewery district where all those are turned into lofts now. So, so you got heavy timber, you got everything in between. You, you, you yeah. So, I mean, for us, like, the further west you go in the city, it, it's just all wood because it's all newer construction anyway. And then they're building just new stuff. When we get new stuff downtown in the mid rise range, a lot of it's that podium, but we're also dealing with a lot of just that. Why build something new? They're going to renovate this, make it look better and use the same space to make this loft building, especially near the waterfront. If they can get in those buildings and make apartments, they're going to be high dollar apartments. So they're renovating those. We're dealing with a lot of that with the, the heavy timber or taking a building. And it was type three and they're adding a lot of, you know, lightweight steel stuff involved in it. So it's, we try to be proactive with it and we see it, we hear about it on the news. We stay in those buildings as much as we can. And we watch what they do, not just the new ones, but the renovations and see what are they doing with it? Some of it we've realized, you know, in this strip, like Todd, you've been on Dolphin Street. You know, you look down Dolphin Street, it's, it's very similar to Bourbon Street. Um, they all look like they're 100-year-old buildings. Well, they got one under renovation right now, and just talking to the guys and being able to see it because you're watching them renovate it, you're like, man, this doesn't look 100 years old. It turns out that <laughs> one building in the middle of this strip of 100-year-old buildings was built in 1987. 
Well, I can figure out how that happened. You know, there's a reason that building's not there anymore, but <laughs> you wouldn't pull up if you didn't get in there and talk to these people and say, this is a 1987 building with lightweight building construction. You would be saying this is a 1890 building or a 1900 building or a 1910 building, and it's all legacy construction. So you can learn a lot. And one of the big things we learned with doing that is we started being able to recognize where voids were that we didn't expect to be there because they had everything opened up. So it was very eye-opening, and it wasn't just talking about it. Guys saw it. They they look at the face of that building now, and they remember where it is because they saw it. And that that really kind of feeds right into where where this where I want this conversation to go next. Let's just hit some. And again, you this list could be like you know five pages long, but you know some down and dirty most common things when we talk about our top concerns with these new buildings, with this new construction, uh, with the remodels and refurbs and all that, kind of some top concerns based on really what I'm going to share is more on our top concerns on the experience side of things. And one of the big ones I want to hit on first, the way I approach it from a battalion chief level, my first thing I want to look at is the occupancy itself. Is it Upper middle class, is it a four-story, five-story multifamily that's more middle of the road? And all that's going to come into play in my decision-making from a strategic standpoint on how we may approach this fire. And I made a list, and, and I'm going to let you guys, we're just going to bounce this around. Some of your top concerns, obviously occupancy we just hit, is it residential? Is it you know a combination of commercial and residential? We have some that I've seen that are going to be storefront, ground floor, office space on floors two and three, and then residentials four, five, and six. So you get every possible challenge all wrapped up into a thing that is a block and a half city block long, and you have every possible thing all confined into one damn building. And then you add a three-story parking deck to the rear, so you have zero rear access to this particular new building. And that is, again, one of those other top concerns when I look at these things um, that we have to start overcoming. And so give me a top concern you have, Jimmy, as far as some of the things, more more of the common things you see with these buildings in your district and things you've seen across the country, sir. Yeah, Todd, I, I think of what is the risk to the building occupants and I don't think we discussed that, but some of these mid-rises, you can have anywhere from, you know, 20 units, 300 plus units. Um, what is the degree of danger posed to the building occupants? And then, of course, it's a location of the fire as well. Uh, one of my biggest concerns is that you're going to pull up on these buildings is that they're so wide. Remember, they're wider than they are taller. You're going to have that nothing showing. Fire. Yes. Great. I want to clear that up. Nothing showing doesn't mean squat. Right. It doesn't mean to let your guard down. And I, I always talk about that complacency factor that kicks in, you know, and we don't see fire blowing out of a window. Things kind of calm down. But we really that's the point where we really need to stay vigilant and on guard. Um, that's one of the concerns. You're not going to see that as well. Uh, for example, if I wanted to do a window drop. All right. That would probably be the expedient way to get water on the fire. I may be, and we get into this apparatus placement, so far away from the engine where I can't do the window drop. 
Now you have to go through your, your progression sets is what's next on us. I wanted to pause here, Todd, real quick and just talk about uh, gathering build, building intelligence. I know in my jurisdiction, uh, they are not required because of the height of the building to keep a, a building intelligence binder. And a, what a binder is, is kind of just like the floor plan. Sprinkler, uh, sprinkler shutoff, standpipe location, stairwell access, type of elevators. They're not required to have that, so you don't know what's in there, uh, especially if that's been the first time of you being in this mid-rise building. You're going to get really jacked up and really quick. So they're not required to have that. I like what, Steve, what you talked about is what is your stretch. Um, we keep and I know I do, I keep information in the elevator key boxes about the building. That's going to be our first contact for gathering information on mid-rises. What is our stretch? Where are the stairway locations? And then, and then notes. Uh, Steve, you said it. During an ambulance or an EMS run or some type of non-fire event, man, is a really good time to peel your eyes and really get a good look at these buildings, knowing what stairways I, I, and what your stretches. I, yeah, I even add to that, and it's it's you're driving down the street, you're going to get the meal, whatever you're doing. Oh shit, they're building a new four story mid rise. The sticks are starting to go up. The first thing I do when we get back to the firehouse, I grab the young guys and they say, "Fellas, what are the what are the hydrant mains and where are our hydrants?" Start right then. And then I usually send a little text out to the district. Hey, fellas, new mid-rise going up on the corner of 4th and 4th, 4th and 5th, whatever it is. Let's get together. Everybody get a chance, drive by, see what you think. And we build just a little pre-plan, nothing crazy. Most of the time it's not written. We do it on a whiteboard for just a company drill or battalion drill. All right, if we're first, we're, first engine should probably go here. They're going to have a plug here. It's a 12-inch main. First truck, if it's 13 truck, I want you to go here. We start setting up for that building under construction on fire right now because the biggest hazard we have is that first two to three months where there's no drywall in it. There's no sheetrock in it at all. That's our biggest concern. So we take it a little bit farther, Jimmy, to where – when we start seeing sticks go up, we start figuring out right then, if it's on fire under construction, here are our mains, here's what the size are, this is where our big water is going to be positioning, here's our collapse zones, da-da-da-da-da. And then as it gets built and we can get in it, that just expands. But I think you really need to start looking at main sizes and looking at positioning for these buildings under construction, because we've all seen them. And man, when they go, if you don't smack them in the face, you're not going to have a good day. That's a lot of yeah, energy. Recently that Aurora, Colorado yeah. mid-rise under construction, uh, you know, made the news on that. And just the amount of time. It was what? Charlotte Charlotte had that one. That was huge. Too, Ended yeah. up with what? Yes, a mayday right. or two, right? At least one mayday. Guy yeah, got cut it. off. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's a nice vulnerability. Yeah, and a construction worker yeah, was killed that's in that, that fire. point where it's vulnerable, but it's also unsafe for you if you're doing an investigation, especially when there's darkness. Um, I tell you, I was in one, and I, I think I said that out to you, Todd, is that you have open shafts in these buildings. Be careful 
yes. of your approach and where you're putting that plant foot in your next step forward. Because we have, Steve, all kinds of holes in these mid-rises, trash chutes, and then the open elevator shafts. Yes, they're supposed to protect it, but is every contractor protecting you from a fall hazard? That's going to be a no. You know, uh, to use caution, that's just one prime example uh, of the risk to us, you know, in doing an investigation. But what else is lurking in there? What other hazards are in there that we're, we're not aware of? Um, I have one building going up right now. We've been in it several times. We're watching this thing grow from its infancy to the final product. That's the time to get into these buildings and pre-planning, walking and knowing what, what holes and coming up with some deployment strategies in the event if there is a fire. At least we have a game plan. And at least we're already ahead of the, the, the curve here is that we've, we've got a plan and we've got a couple contingencies in our pocket. 100%. Uh, Ro, give me a couple of the concerns you guys have when you look at these buildings. I think under construction, what Jimmy just said with open shafts, open elevators, uh, if it's trash chute driven, if it is going to be a building with a trash chute, have that, that shaft open, incomplete standpipe systems if you're going that direction. Um, what are some other concerns when they're occupied in your eyes that you guys discuss when you're looking at these buildings? So our, our biggest thing when we, and we've done multi-company drills in, in these buildings, uh, we just try to focus on them because it's not our bread and butter. We don't do them all the time. We're still, bread and butter is still that one and two family dwelling house where people are very comfortable. So our biggest concern when we talk amongst ourselves is, uh, it goes back to, like you said earlier, experience with these buildings. And that for us is leading to orientation. Um, not always just in a, like a Mayday situation, but People knowing where they're supposed to go. They understood the terminology or the stairs didn't mess them up or the way an apartment's labeled, the number and the letter or whatever. They know where they're going. And then if they were in trouble, they know how to get out. I mean, you black out a hallway and you put somebody under stress, just the hallway can turn somebody around and they don't know how to get out. So people's orientation, knowing where they are, and then they're monitoring their air. It's not just that that single family house anymore where – Oh, your bell rang. Oh, I'm getting low. I got to go now. If they do that there, they've still got a long way to get out. So for us, a lot of it's just that orientation and people knowing where they're going. They understand where they're supposed to be and where they fit and how to get there. And then if things get bad, how to get out and that they're not lost. Um, so just because they're so much different than houses, orientation is kind of our number one thing we talk about. And then we can build from there because nothing else really mattered if we couldn't get our guys there. And then if things go south, we've got to be able to get to them and we've got to be able to, for them to know how to get out or we be able to get them out. So we focus with that orientation first just because it's such a different building style than that bread and butter of that one and two family dwelling and then build off of that. Great, great point. I'm, I'm actually making that. Uh, I'm going to circle back here in just one second. Some other challenges that I think people need to be aware of, and this is very, very common, especially in the South, is rooftop decks, rooftop gardens, gazebos, almost like an outdoor living space on the damn roof of these buildings. So Atlanta just suffered a, a really, really difficult fire in a block-long U-shaped parking deck on the rear where people were letting off fireworks on the roof deck. 
fired through the rubber membrane, got the common cockloft, and ran in two directions on them. So these are, again, during pre-planning, during walkthroughs, do they have a roof deck? Do they have usable space on the roof that residents may be holding? I've seen where there's gigantic parties on top yep. of these roof decks. Um, say yep. pools. Pools. Yeah, bars. Yeah, pools even. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Pools. I mean, yeah. They're... <laughs> <laughs> I feel you, Steve. <laughs> Just when you thought you saw everything, there's something else that pops up. There's yeah, else right? I, I mean, see, we have a mid-rise building where they took a, a, a CTA train and they made that into a lounge on, like, the fourth floor of a mid-rise. And it's right by the pool. And it's right yeah, by the Yeah, that's not much of a dead train, is it? Yeah, at least. Yeah. But it's a train that goes to nowhere, you know? the story of my life, you know? Yeah. Talk about the L. It's on the fourth floor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I want to, I really want to quickly, again, I'm going to try to throw out these tips, things that hopefully guys can either rewind or dot down when we talk. When they're under construction, understanding the open shafts. When they're under construction, understanding that my code says one thing, but is the, if you have to use sandpipe, is the sandpipe completed to the floor under construction? Which is oh, not only that, but where is it located? They're only required one. So where is that? That may not be. I mean, although it sounds great, that temporary standpipe might not be your best course of action. Exactly. You, you know, and you may you may look and, and, and end up running two lines off that same standpipe, right? Right. There's a lot. There's a lot of caveats to that. That yeah. we may hook to that standpipe and have to go. 300 feet off that standpipe because there's no access on the other side. Right. So, so understand there's, uh, and, and you know, you, you, I got it. You're, we're, we're missed if we don't talk about the Deutsches Bank fire. That was a temporary standpipe. So yeah. we got to get into those. It, the, the past is still there and there's still a lot of lessons from those fires. The uh, other thing, again, just kind of a real quick recap on that. When we talk about the, these types, is on your pre-plans or on your walkthroughs or on your EMS call, if there's access to the roof that's wide open, they more likely have usable space up on that roof as far as whether it's a party deck. Uh, I've seen uh, where they have like little community gardens on top of there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Pools like Steve and Jimmy both just mentioned. So do not ignore those roof deck fires. It may look like an outside fire to you, but always remember what that deck is sitting on top of, that rubber membrane roof. If it gets in there, then the fight's on as far as trying to stop that fire from spreading. Another thing, we didn't touch this yet. Uh, I know Jimmy mentioned about trash chutes. Those chutes are on the interior, but they dump into a dumpster that's typically located inside the damn building. So I've been to a couple of those fires, and they produce a tremendous amount of smoke conditions on the upper floors that we've got to address. Don't ignore a, a, what looks like a dumpster fire on arrival. It's going to be inside that building and you're going to have a major smoke issue that can be traveling the entire length of that structure. So I, I want to add to that, Todd, something we just saw brand new. Um, they just put a three-story 55 and older living in my district and um, on activation of the alarm, of the fire alarm, all of the trash chute doors now are airlock shut. You cannot open the trash chute doors on the floors. 
You have to go to where the trash is on the bottom, cut this airline before the airlock releases and allows you to open. So if you've got a trash chute that hasn't been taken out and it's completely full, and your fire's actually in the chute, uh-huh. you have to go down below to where the trash is in the room that's in the building, cut this line before you can access the trash chute. So Again, we would have never known that without a good walkthrough, right? And, and knowing that that this thing is on a little vacuum pump and it pumps and airlocks these doors shut. And I don't, I don't know if that's code. I'm a buddy Kyle Smith looking up that up for me uh, to see if that's part of the code. But I didn't know this. There's actually an NFPA co on trash chutes. Did you know that? I knew. Kyle that. told me that. I didn't know that. Kyle told me yeah. that uh, when we were together in December, and he's like, "Yeah, there's a code on that." I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" But I, I know wasn't aware of that. Airlock. I, I, yeah, that was a new one. I've never seen it. And I'm sure, you know, other people have seen it, but that's the first time I have. Very, yeah, that's interesting. The um, I w- Coming back, one thing that I think Captain Rowett said that I want us all to visit. And, Jimmy, I want to throw this right into your lane. And, and I know it's not always the, a great topic because of the what's occurred in Chicago just recently. On orientation, air supply fire attack considerations when we get into that 300 foot long hallway fires on six what has chicago looked at now or what are you guys looking at just of the overall safety standpoint i love he brought this up orientation and air monitoring some tips maybe you can share uh again really from that experience um and obviously you guys have had that line of duty death and things that you can share with everybody to keep us safe from, you know, having anything like that happen. Yeah, Todd, I'll jump into that. You know, right now, as you know, uh, for CFD, it's been a it's been a very hard and difficult 2003. Uh, I'm sorry, 2023 for us. Uh, within a span of a little over line of duty does, uh, but I do want to talk maybe right now and just touch on. Uh, and just the the roof safety, maybe we might depart a little bit off subject, uh, but I do want to make sure and get this point across is that everything we do on the fire ground has a degree of danger, and everything needs to be approached with the risk benefit. Right? I, I say it. What when we're up there, what are we trying to do, and how is it going to help the people? All right. What is it going to do tactically to change things for the better? So that must be approached. Not every, and I'll say it again, not every roof needs to be open. There is not every roof where we need to be transversing from north to south to east to west, walking a very dangerous roof. And the question again, what am I doing up here? Let's talk about that roof safety too. And these are the couple things that we've been circulating, uh, working groups, all right? The main or the stick having some type of source lighting to get you back to where the stick is. Uh, where firefighter Drew um, Price fell, uh, that smoke was really hanging, hanging on that on that roof. There was no uplift on it. So now you're dealing with visual obscurity, and you know what happens after that? You don't know where that next foot is going to land. All right? Is it an open uh, light shaft? Uh, you know, is are you going over the side of the building? Remember, in some of these buildings, the parapet walls can be six, six to nine inches. They could be a little bit greater. Every building is different. You need to work in the pairs. You have to have a probe 
all right, where you're going to step. And if you can't see, then you're going to have to get down on your hand and knee. All right. So they. Yeah, and I think that's something else, Todd. We deal with in the north, in the in the colder states, that you guys don't have to deal with as much. You have in the last week or so, but the smoke stratification. When we turn down a street, a lot of times, you know, you got a hell of a fire. But I'm, I can't tell you what's on fire because the smoke stratifies to the street. It hangs so low, you can't really tell where you're going. So that, that's a great point, Jim. Too is it? You know, we need to really target and and, and look at. Uh, natural openings again when we're dealing in these multi-dwelling roofs. Uh, water on the fire, then take that that covering off the uh, the stairwell as well. But the point of loitering and lingering rye up there is that we really need to re-examine our safety when it comes to topside flat roof operations. Um, this really hit us and hit us hard. And our goal, uh, I know that all of us do collectively, is to keep people safe and bring them home. That's the fact. That's just so real. And it happens so fast. It happens so fast. Todd, I wanted to ask you, you were asking me one more question about the roof, uh, too. What was the other part of that uh, question? And I, I, I wanted to just talk about, and I found in my notes here, about some of the NFPA 1710 staffing standards. We'll get into that later, or you want me to pull that up right well, I, I wanted to touch on because we mentioned uh, during even pre-show conversations and, and early on about staffing challenges. Um, and I, I think you already kind of hit it, Jimmy, was, you know, working the outside vent position. I know, I know a lot of places have adopted that, but that subject matter when you're already short staffed, working alone. And I know a lot of departments don't have the staff and say, hey, we're going to have a two-person two team doing this, this, and this. But that's why I wanted to bring that up, you know, with the open shafts as far as skylights and those type of things on those rooftops. And I, and I think you hit the point on, do we need to be there? But I think the key point I want the listeners to take away from is why are we on the roof? And have, have a tactical reason or strategic reason to actually send people up there is it for ben or are we checking for extension but what is our reason i think that's a critical point in every decision we make on these type of fires is have a reason to do these things and not just do it because we always do it yeah and i'm going to just add two more things to this right now is that on a mid-raise you have the uh as you had mentioned a lot of these stairways have access to the roof because of the green space initiative that they're doing they're using the rooftop for uh, many uses, uh, gathering, uh, barbecuing up there, some cases pools, and then, then they have that green space for the gardens. Uh-huh. Uh, that could be a source for your, your smoke extraction or your vent points. But remember on in mid-rise, we can really take advantage of horizontal ventilation as well. Uh, you know, what side, windward and leadward side, we can vent it horizontally, but we can also uh, incorporate the positive pressure fan but I did smoke removal process. Uh, just like sometimes these are smaller, like miniature high rises, uh, but we still can employ some of the tactics, again, using the, the stairwell to, to evacuate smoke or some 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 key horizontal uh, pivotal placements to get some smoke using the wind to your advantage uh, as well. And safe havens, and I, I wanted to talk about that safe havens. Um, 
it would still be idea to create another space or another refuge apartment in some of these. Remember, you got long hallways, 200 to 250 feet. Just think if your stretch was out of a hallway, your stretch was 200 feet. You broke one of those sliding doors. You got a prevailing wind coming in at about 15 to 20 miles an hour. Uh, you're now at a wind driven uh, by description. You are in one. And I know one thing, I'm not that fast that I used to be. It's going to be very hard for me full turnout <laughs> to that stairwell uh that fire is going to get me so again building things in your favor and it also includes just a point at the the refuge or the alamo when things turn south man where am i going to put put, the, put put our guys in you know and then regroup yeah and i like that because that fed into a lot you know fed into some other answers we can give uh from a you know camp the rowette point of view uh, the orientation is great, and I love the the concept. But having that, hey, if it goes south, I can immediately go right, you know, across the hall into a safe, safe a safer area. So I really like that. So here we go, because this is the most popular question I'm getting when I'm teaching anywhere. I could be teaching uh, trash fires on the outside of the interstate, and this question comes up every damn time on mid rides. And I'm going to start with Roy Wett because he is my standpipe guru, connection, Jockamamie valve guy. On mid-rise operations, when do we choose? Stretch, standpipe. Start with Roy Wett. And it, People are looking for a definitive, and I, and I don't give definitive answers. I give my opinion on it, but I want to get it from you three, too. On your best practices, your best ideas, do we go standpipe on a fire on five or do we go stretch or seven? So let's go with that. Go ahead, bro. So we we stretch as much as we can versus use a system. Um, we use the system kind of if we're forced to, um, but if we can stretch, we do. So anything on lower floors, we stretch. And going up typically depends on do we have to wrap the stairs or does it have a well hole? Or was there a way to get vertical? Which um, for us, and I know like I've talked about this with Steve before because it's different for both of us um, just in its department preference. We typically do use rope. Um, we don't do the coupling drop very much. In 15 years, I know one fire that I did a coupling drop at and it's just the way things worked out. But typically we like using, using our rope. Um, but that's how we look at it is which one's going to get us water on the fire the quickest with us being in still the most amount of control as possible. And we give up a lot of control when we use the system because uh, it wasn't in a mid-rise and it turned out to not be that big of an issue. But we had we had a call in a high-rise the other day and when we had to put the line in place, we called for water and they the guy in the outlet re just yelled up the stairs, he said, hey, Cap, we don't have any water, system's down. We had to, that's a big deal that oh, now we got to pump the system and that, that wasn't a plan you're thinking of and you have a delay you're dealing with now. Turns out that building's in a million dollar lawsuit with the city for failure to follow fire code and nothing works. But that's what you deal with when you run into the standpipe system is things like that might happen where you're pumping it, you checked it that morning, it's your stuff. So we try to keep that operation as long as possible of us pumping by just stretching it from the street. Uh, so anything on a lower floor, anything going into a basement, which we don't deal with a ton of basements, but we do downtown some more than the rest of the city. But if we go down ground level, that second floor, we're stretching. Three, it's going to start coming in play based on 
you know, length of hallways. Do we have, can we get vertical or do we have to wrap a lot of stairs and things like that? But if we can stretch, that's what we're going to do. And we use the standpipe system basically if we're forced into it based on the length of the stretch or we have to go very vertical and the height of the building or we're going vertical and we have to wrap stairs and things like that. But if we can, we're going to stretch from the rig. All right. Steve. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a deep question, and there's a lot to it. Um, I agree with Anthony. Uh, when we can control our own destiny, I'm a huge fan of that. You know, well hole stretching, there's nobody better at this than the FDNY. The FDNY is the best people to well hole stretch in the world. And most of what I've learned from well hole stretching is from two guys, uh, really three, Ray McCormack, uh, you know, Timmy Collette, Jimmy Smith, those guys that are just absolutely phenomenal at this. And they've gave me so many tips and tricks over the years about well holes. And, you know, I think one thing people have to realize that, that can also be a determining factor is when we estimate the stretch on return stairs, if I'm going straight vertical up the well, you figure 10 feet per floor, right? I'm going to the fourth story. So we got we got one length. One length will get us from, from there. You know, make sure you've got your length under the well so you're not pulling couplings and end up with a coupling catching on the door or whatever. Whatever travel length you need needs to be in the well when you start. The second thing is if I don't have a well hole that can accept that, understand that when we go around return stairs, double the height of the stretch. If you double the height of the stretch, that's about how much hose you're going to need. So you're going to need 80 feet, so you're going to need two lengths to go the travel length of one of one length on the same four-story fire. So at that point, is a coupling drop better? right? Am I, am I going to take that extra length with me, do a coupling drop, have a 100-foot working length out the window? Uh, Anthony, you're going to do your, your rope. It, it, there's not a wrong answer to this. If you're going to do a rope stretcher, if you're going to do a coupling drop, go to the apartment closest to the attack stairwell and do it. That, that, that's where you need to do that, um, the floor below. So it, there's, it's a unique question, Todd. There's a, lot, there's a lot of parts to it, but the fastest, most direct route to the fire. Anthony hit it right on the head. What is going to get us water on the fire the quickest? Because we forget, we haven't talked about this. We're used to go taking that line up to two. What is that little word called reflex time? How many times has your guys well hole stretched? How many times have they done a rope stretch? Do you think that's going to be a perfect scenario? Is that, is that going to go absolutely flawless? Because guess what? It's that, it's that event that we don't do a lot, but we need to do it efficiently when we do get it, right? So I don't have a hard and fast thought of, of whether we're going to use the standpipe or whether we're going to use the stairwell. One determining factor for me, though, is where is the fire located in relationship to the attack well? How far do I have to go? How far do I have to go from that attack stairwell to the apartment that's on fire? And that's a big determining factor. And that's a determining factor for me. Man, my, we may be throwing the deck gun on this sucker for a minute. While we're, mm -hmm. we're, while we're, doing, while we're doing our thing going up there, because it's not something we do every day, we may be throwing that deck gun in that window until we get, right? You, you show up with three guys and your help's four, six, eight minutes, ten minutes away. They expect something right now. Your best course yeah. of action may be dump that deck gun until we get some help, but you're doing something and you're stopping the progression of fire. Yes. 
hundred percent agree. And Jimmy, same thing. I don't, uh, um, I don't want to get too far down, but I want to say in this consideration, if you guys have something solid and I agree with both, um, obviously Steve and Anthony on what they're saying about want to hear your, uh, ideas and thoughts on this for our listeners as well. Yeah. Tough. A lot of the, the options are limited uh, for us, or in other words, your decisions are already made. Uh, I'm going to tell you what's unique about our city in Chicago is that the standpipe option isn't going to work. Why is that? Because the building has not achieved the height of 79 feet or greater. So in these buildings, we're not going to have standpipes. So we can scratch that off the many things or the list of things to do or what's going through your mind. Everything's going to be a have to be a, a, a hand jack creative type lead out depending on location of the stairway, uh, depending on location of the fire. Um, and I, I, you know, when I talked about that, is that your our window drops is going to be our go to, but where are we in relation to the fire? So you need to keep your bearing and orientation when you're going upstairs. For example, when I go upstairs, I'm talking to myself. I'm always reaching out so I know what the street side was when I get up on that floor where I'm going to drop. All right? It's very easy to get confused in there. So standpipes are off. Uh, we're going to opt for the rope drop. I carry the rope. I carry the hook. Steve, I showed you the hook. No fancy knots. No spatial training. Girth it and hook it really quick. So window drop is going to be us. Uh, butt drop could be another option as well. We have these as well. But what is, I call it expedient firefighting. And I've also had a couple looks at me uh, like, hey, man, are you from Nar uh, Mars? But actually dropping out on the same floor, on the same floor right adjacent to the unit on fire. Bringing the hose in, just making that subtle turn and going in there. He says, yeah, that's unsafe. I says, then you tell me. What on the fire ground is safe? That's a expedient firefighting. You know, we're looking at the degree of, of danger to building occupants and what is the fastest way, Mr. Jimmy, to get water on the fire. All right. And these are things that you need to explore and get out there and train. You have the skill sets, but you're going to use, you have a couple, all right, and practice the heck out of it. You would be surprised how good you get. 100%. And I think, uh, one of the considerations that when we talk about standpipe operations in these type of buildings, obviously the reflex time Steve mentioned, uh, what is our standard? What is our standpipe kit? There are still departments throughout the country that are operating in street quarter, which we know you are not going to do well with the standpipe set up in that scenario. But when was that system last tested or how good is that system? If it's residential, is every tap off throughout the damn building? Is there stuff wedged in there? Your reflex time is going to go way up. If you are not proficient in sandpipe operations, that reflex time of getting that initial water on that fire is going to go way up. And where we could have probably overcame it with something that Steve's talking about or Rose talking about and Jimmy's talking about of making our own stretch and then finding the best way to do that for our complement on our hose beds, for our staffing levels. And Steve said it, Chicago is one of the best, if not the best apartment with that outside water with a heavy hit. You guys are so good. You made it on Facebook on Hit It Hard from the Yard. 
uh, when you guys did an outside hit at a pump fire. So you guys, you guys have reached, reached the pinnacle when you made it on that uh, Facebook page. But the idea is we're trying to slow down the fire progression, whether it's an outside hit or doing a well hole stretch or a coupling drop or a rope drop. But these are things I think have to be discussed today and not when we arrive on scene with five guys going, so what do you think? Well, I heard Rowette say they always do rope. Well, I heard Jimmy say they go right next door and do a butt drop. These are things the department's got to determine. And I'm glad that, I mean, for everybody listening, if you're making notes or you're going to rewind, none of us are telling you this is the only way. Oh, no. There's yeah, and time to, to act. Say again. Go, go ahead. I just want to add to that about when we start talking about deck on there. Look, if if this maybe this building, you, you, your bosses say, I am not giving up the position for the deck gun so I can get my truck in there to do rescue. Mm-hmm. I can understand that. If an incident commander feels that way, I would understand that to a point. Do we have a ramp? Do we have a two and a half inch ground monitor? Right. You, you, I'm telling you, you're going to do the same damage with that off a hundred foot piece of hose and still not give up position for your truck. If you have that reflex time. Nobody says this is the only box we have to put that in. You have to learn to go, okay, I got people hanging out the windows. I can't take that spot and take the deck gun. Right. But I got a ram or I got a quick attack or whatever I got. I can drop 100 feet of hose, get out, be out of the way, and have the same effect. So, so when we talk about those things, understand these are all options, man. I can't. When's the last fire you went to? that plan A worked the entire time. It doesn't happen often. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so if I have if I have short staffed, I don't have the bodies. I got to get water on the fire. I'm going to have an A, B, C, D, E list. Preferable, still works, not the best, but it's going to get it done. Yeah. Right? right? But it, it, it's a matter of being able to do that with how many people? One, you can only any tactic you employ like that when you're staff limited, you have to be able to employ that tactic with one individual, whether it's the deck gun, whether it's a two and a half inch ground monitor, or whether it's a two and a half inch handline or a two inch handline, whichever you prefer. It has to be able to be accomplished with one body. I don't have six bodies to throw at that task. So keep in mind whatever you decide to do, it has to fit your model. Not Columbus's model, Mobiles, Atlanta's, or Chicago's. It has to fit your model and your staffing. I, I 100% agree. I think one of the other things, if, if we're not sure about the standpipe, we know our pump works. We know our hose. We know our fittings all work. I'm always looking for an option not to use the standpipe. <laughs> That's my first go-to. What are some other options? And that's kind of the, where we're at talking about this and the different options in getting water to the fifth floor as rapidly as we can. So I want to take that, Jimmy, and roll that. Actually, I'll start with Roe on this. Roll into how best to train for these things now. Because I can't, I can't throw out all these options without saying, hey, here's some training resources that you can go out Get all that, you know, leave the kitchen table this afternoon and go out and go, 
let's just uh, for well hole or coupling drop. Let's kind of focus on something that most pumps can operate with. And like Steve said, one or two people. We we don't have eight bodies. We don't have ten bodies the, on the initial engine. One or two people training, we can start doing two day to get ready for that fire. So I think it starts with, um, and we've all heard Ray say it a, a million times at different conferences. It starts with looking at your hose bed and seeing when you're going to be forced into the standpipe operation. If all you have is 200 foot preconnects, you're going to be forced into the standpipe a lot quicker than people that have a dead bed and they have that bulk bed and that long line. Um, that's how we got back to having those bulk beds on our rigs was the downtown real companies. Quick, real quick, I don't want to, I don't want to get your flow, but I want you to pause for one second and define bulk bed because people look at bulk yeah. bed, static beds, supply hose beds, terminology wise. So I want you to just kind of explain that. So anybody listening, especially a younger guy that's never heard that term, try just explain that. Very genetically, or very, you know. I'll give you the exact layout of our bulk bed. So it's an attack line. It's 500 feet long total, 300 feet of two and a half in a flat load to a bell reducer to 100 feet of inch and three quarter in a flat load and finished with a 100 foot Minuteman bundle. That's our 500 foot bulk bed that we can now stretch. It's not pre-connected to anything. We estimate how much we need. We pull that much off, start stretching it, and hook it into a side discharge on the rig. So I don't want to, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. I want to get this very well defined for people because I get it as, again, one of those common questions I hear all the time. Robertson, bulk bed in your definition or your setup, just so we, yeah. I want people to have multiple looks at this. So Columbus, we're very lucky. We have a fire chief that understands and we have an operations chief that gets it and, and allows us to manipulate our hose beds a little bit, nothing crazy, based on your district or everybody's district's different in some of these fire departments we have to have the same hose load and everything has to be exactly the same does it really because jimmy's district is different than larry mccormack or larry's district in squad five totally different animals right totally different animals so we've been allowed to do that so at 18 everything we do works off the bundle okay so it's a hundred foot bundle an inch and three quarter a 200 foot pre-connect a 250 foot pre-connect with a hundred foot bundle but then I have a 200-foot 2-inch with a 100-foot bundle. And then I have another two, another 100-foot bundle of 2-inch. And then I have a bulk bed of uh, 300 feet of 2.5 that we can reduce down and take with us. I also have my RAM pre-connected at 100 feet. So if I have that commercial job and or, maybe I can want to extend up. Maybe I got a whole floor of fire and I can get that 2.5-inch that ground monitor to the third floor drop it in the hallway and let 502 gallons a minute of, of dog eat, right? Spin the tip and extend off with a bundle. So everything is going to be determined by access positioning while location to the fire. That, that, that's, I mean, it, 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 you, you have to just break it down. Remember, it's no different than the stretching for success system, the five keys, positioning apparatus, right? Selecting the proper size and length of the line. Okay, proper entry point. All of these things work together for the common goal, whether it's a one-story ranch or whether it's a six or seven-story mid-rise. All of these systems still have to work together, and each one is dependent upon the other. If I position the first apparatus, first engine in the wrong place, not close to the well of entry, 
a lot of things just changed. And you just handcuffed yourself to tactically, maybe we are going to the standpipe because I didn't position right. You, you know what I'm saying? So you have to, everything has to start with positioning the first apparatus. That's going to determine how the stretch goes. The stretch is going to determine how the push goes. It's all a system, whether it's on the first floor or whether it's on the seventh floor, we still have to hit those benchmarks of those things. And the only way in hell that's going to happen is if you get to these buildings, what is the access? Are we close to the well? Can we get the engine close to either well? Like you said, is it have a parking garage in the rear to where we don't have access? That's a game changer. Is it the yeah. U-shape, or is it is it deeper than it is wide? Where it's nothing showing, Jimmy. That's you, and we pull up to the front door. You just locked yourself in, man. You've yeah. locked yourself in. If you get in there, and you got smoke. You've locked yourself in positioning wise and limited yourself tactically by doing it. Hundred percent, Jimmy. Same thing on the bulk beds, and we'll rotate back around to what I was originally getting at. So. Uh, just your bulk bed setups there, that you, your recommendation, whatever you want. Yeah, I'm going to discuss. We, we have two options here. Let's talk about working the, the working end or the office space of the engine. 752 and a half we got. All right. Uh, some companies, oh, I hope Dennis is not listening with your sometimes why, why. Uh, I don't. I like to use the uh, inch and a quarter smooth bore, and then right off of that, thread on a hundred feet of inch and three quarter with the seven eight uh, attack line. That's a working end. That's a working end of our business. So that's a snapshot of that. But I don't want to discount or exclude your high rise packs, bringing them in also in mid rise buildings and just converting that. We run a mid rise uh, package. So in other words, we can bring up the attack line, get it flaked out, and everything is going really good, really fast. And then the supply side, the two and a half, is going to come up, A, either through a window drop, or B, it's going to come up through that well. So sometimes with this, we have, well, we have the luxury of manpower. We have two simultaneous things happening. First engine is uh, stretching out their mid-rise package or their bundles that are already pre-made. They just go up. And then the second engine, the plan is they come up through the stairway, and then they'll meet the first and second engine, make that attachment, and then call for water. But we just accomplished two movements, all right? Two movements to save us time and to buy us time. But again, that needs to be coordinated and well orchestrated with your second engine company or whatever your mutual aid, Tom, who's my second engine? And I wanted to mention this, too, is that don't be in such a hurry to get a second line. We need a second line. we got to get that first line in service on water, man, before we do it. Everything's focus needs to focus on the first line. And I, and I want to add something, Jimmy, that's, that's an absolute phenomenal point. And I think we forget about this a lot is you don't take what we're saying here as the only way. If you have a way that works for you. By all means, continue to use it. Don't don't take that. But until you get in these buildings, I bet there's not, well, probably not, there might be one, but they will let you stretch dry in these buildings. They'll let you stretch dry in these buildings. They do, they do not want you not to be prepared. Uh, I, I personally have not had anybody not tell me, yeah, oh, that's fine, right? That, that just go lay it dry. Try it. See what works for you. To continue, I will add one thing, though. You know, um, 
we got to learn to get beyond our books. Our books do not address any of this, any of the certification books. And I'm talking all of them. I hope they're listening. They don't address it. And what they do address isn't correct in the way they address it. That's my personal opinion. I'm not speaking for anybody but Steve Robinson. We have to learn and get out and watch things like this. Watch Ray McCormack and Tim Clad and Jimmy Smith and all these guys that are experts at this and get to conferences to learn how to accomplish this. It's not going away. It's not going to get any easier. So these new skills are, are, are need to be learned now. So, so I encourage people to, to get out and learn new things. Is that comfortable? It's not comfortable, right? It's not comfortable when we put ourselves out there to things we've never learned or done. One thing we do as a uh, district in the 3rd Battalion, once a quarter we get together with all the engine companies and truck companies, and we do battalion training on making our own standpipe. Um, it, it's on my, my Facebook page there where we literally made our own standpipe with engine seven, and we had it down. We literally had it down where we, seven stories, we had water coming out of two-inch line in a minute and 15 seconds, right? So but that wasn't the first time we did it, I assure you. It takes time. But when you break that system down and you, you revisit it once a quarter with all your companies, not just your company, that's the big part because these types of systems are going to take multiple companies to accomplish in a timely manner. Hey, you're back. You know, the most the most common technology thing you can overcome is to actually have a charge device. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so here's another tip. Make sure your device is plugged in or charged in the middle of a podcast. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, uh, uh, Steve, I'd like to jump in and, and at the that deck on too, because I think some of the listeners might want to know just a little bit more of that being your first strike option on arrival. You know, so these are things to examine, you know, when you pull up. What is the best water? Remember that saying? What's the best water? Well, it's the fastest water delivery. It's your best water, 8.3 seconds per gallon, all right? 10 to 15 seconds. Um, could buy you some valuable time. Are you going to get some fire regrowth? Yes. Are you going to get a rebound? Yes. But at least we have bought some time. Seconds do count on the fire ground. They really do when you add it all up and everything that we do. Uh, we're trying trying our best to get that water on the fire and that deck on that answer to your problem is sitting right there on the street and how many times have i've seen that on and not the point fingers at other departments but your weapon is right there and it could have a significant impact right now or even later down the road as well so don't rule out anything i said steve you talked about that just because i can't get the first truck in there uh, but I can get really quick water, and I'm not telling you're going to be camping out there, getting a hydrant, and staying there all day dumping water in the building. We still have to execute our system and the process of getting water into the unit, still conducting our searches, making sure that the stairwells are clear, the floor above. We still got to do all that, but we need some time, man. Time is non-refundable to us, man. We want to make good decisions on the front end. 
Yeah, and I think Jimmy brings up a great point when we talk about that. We're just time is our number one enemy on these fires. If we can get rapid water into the compartment from the outside, whatever the case may be, we're actually buying time, not just for us, but we're buying time for people trapped. And I think it's one of those, again, we, we've ingrained the fire services that we have to push in every hallway. We have to be interior on everything. And yes, we're going interior, but if it buys me that extra few minutes to get it, that knockback on that fire while my guys are doing a coupling drop or making a standpipe connection, that's all we're focused on is that rapid water. I try to put the fire out. We're trying to buy some damn time. Todd, I, I want to add something to that that I think is vitally important, and I don't think we look at it enough. When we look at things tactically, I think we miss one thing. Pay attention to who's on the assignment. Who's on that box? A normal box for me is engine 18, 7, 16, trucks 13 and 8, 3rd Battalion and Rescue 16. That means I'm going to get help in four minutes, six minutes. I know that. If that same box comes out and I hear engines 18, 1, and 9, trucks 1 and 2 with Rescue 3 in the 1st Battalion, guess what? That time just doubled. Could that tactically change how I'm going to approach this fire? Yes. It damn well better. Yes. You have to pay attention to that. Where's my help coming from? How long is it going to be before I get there? That may be a default action that Jimmy's talking about a whole lot quicker when your help's not coming as fast. So regardless of whether you're a small rule volunteer department and you know you're not getting help for 15 minutes, guess what? Jimmy's tactic may be your go-to first. Yeah. Or you're in the urban inner city department like mine where I go, hey, I make, you know, we'll set up there, but we're going to start heading up because I've got the bodies to do that. But when I hear that other, I hear that box go out and it's not what I want, guess what? Mentally, as a company officer, you have to start making those changes tactically. Right. And you don't need a chief to do that. Right. You, you don't wait on a chief to make those decisions. Yeah. That's my opinion. Yeah, and I think that's a vital point with the staffing levels, department size levels, where they're dependent on a mutual aid or automatic aid company. That may be your go-to. I think that, again, going back to where I was kind of going to before I had technical difficulties, that training aspect, how do we prepare for the fire on Division 4 or on the fifth floor? What are some, uh, real quick, for uh, if you answered this while I was missing for a few minutes, um, for Rowett, again, that's exactly where this started you know, a while ago. Best drill that you can recommend for more, and don't think Mobile, think more of the short staffing is where I'm looking at now, where we're only going to be able to throw eight bodies at this fire. Yeah, so I like, like I said, I start by looking at your rigs themselves and figuring out, is it an option for you to stretch? Do you have enough hose or are you forced into the standpipe? And figure out when you're going to be forced into that standpipe operation and go from there. Then start doing the drills and crawl, walk, run. Start in your firehouse and make sure everyone's on the same page and that we understand what we're doing. If it's a, going to be the standpipe, what's in the bag, how to hook it up, and what we're going to do. If it is going to be a rope stretch or coupling drop, Start in the firehouse, go over it, get everybody on the same page. Then go out. You can use your – if you have an academy and a drill tower, you can do it there to learn the, the processes. For us, we typically do that in our firehouse too. You've seen it. We've got stairwells with well holes. We've got windows we'll rope stretch out of. 
we'll just do it right there in the firehouse and try to avoid going over the academy if we can because we can do everything there. And then, like Steve said, I've only ever had one building tell me no, only one. And we stretch in a lot of our buildings. We've created very good relationships with those buildings. When we show up, they just, oh, do you want to drill today? That's a good relationship to have. One, they love the fire department. They know you're prepared for them. And all it took was going in and asking. And you, they'll look at you crazy at first. And you just tell them you want to be prepared if they have a fire. They're not going to say no. One building's ever told me no when it was an antique furniture store. And there was a plastic chair for $1,200. So my group did not need to be in there. Because as soon as I saw the price tag, they all sat in it. But uh, but I've never had anybody say no other than them. So if you go out and you stretch in those buildings, it's no longer just a theory of I think we can stretch to this floor. You know what you can do in your run area with your hose loads. And you're getting reps in buildings you're going to run in, which you can't rep, you can't replace that. Drill tower's great, but you're not going to make a fire that matters in a drill tower. They will make a fire that matters in that building that they've never been in that fire in that style of building before they're used to one and two story houses now they're in something else anxiety is going to be high you can calm that anxiety down because they've done that stretch in that building they know how to do it they know what they need they're confident in their skills you're going to calm them down which is going to make less likely for mistakes to occur and they know what to do you can't replicate that go train in your buildings know exactly what you can do in your buildings with your hose bed with the different stretches and know when you're going to be forced into that standpipe operation based on your city, your buildings and the hose loads you carry. Right. Great, great answer. Uh, Steve, can you kind of, number one drill you recommend from a shorter, again, not Columbus drill, but a drill that coach that absolutely. So the first thing is you may not, you may not have the knowledge base to be able to go out and drill on on this. Like, like you may not know how to do it, that's okay. There are a ton of resources out there to start gaining knowledge to put it together. Fire engineering training minutes, right? That is a vetted good thing that you can go to and look up these things. Brass tax hard facts. I mean, there's a ton of video series out there that can help you get started in a short staff fire department. Um, conferences. There's more and more of conferences that are reasonably priced that you can go to and pick these things up and get some experience and knowledge from the guys that, that, that have done it. So I think you have to start now, now vet the information, vet the information. Don't take my word for it or anybody on this panel. Don't trust us. We've never called down a hallway together. Vet the information we give you before you take it as gospel. And you do, should do that with anybody. The interweb's the greatest thing in the world. It's the worst thing in the world, right? All at the same time. Because you have good information and you have bad. There's a lot of bad information out there. Um, I think start there to make sure you get good factual information. Call before you walk. Don't think you're going to walk in and change everything you do from day one. It's going to take time and you're going to have to get better at what you do every time. Yes. That's where I would start is make sure the information you've got is factual and then start the drills like, like Anthony's talking about. 100%. Love it. Jimmy, same question, sir. I wanted, uh, yeah, you know, I wanted to talk about this here, Todd, just really quick here. Just I know I've been biting at the bit to talk about this, about that manpower 
And what's lacking in an NFPA 1710 when we talk at staffing or justification of manning levels within your department and entering into mutual aid agreements with others? Uh, on a garden-style apartment building, 27 people that they're recommending show up on the initial alarm for a 1,200-square-foot garden-style apartment. 27 people. <laughs> we have it. So that's something that your department, you know, we don't really think beyond. If you get a good working fire, believe me, you're going to need each and every one of those 27 people. Now we go into the high rises. Now we're looking at 42 people. All right. But somewhere in here, there isn't a recommendation for mid rise buildings. When I look at that, you might as well on a reported fire really load up that front end of your response you can always send them home you can always send them but these are things that where am i going to get manpower these incidents just like a high rise they are going to suck up people you're going to have multiple functions getting water on the fire the searches fire extension you name it who's doing all this stuff todd who you know and an average you know in classes and steve i, I know more than anthony when we teach, remember, he says, how many people are rolling on your engine company? Two to, yeah, two to three people. He says, you don't have much. You're going to have to rely on your friends. Get a little help from your friends from the neighboring communities. Uh, if you're in a mutual aid uh, type style, train with them. Get some type of a plan. You got to have a tactical plan. So that's going to get me back into the conversation right now. The best part of this is having a tactical plan. It only takes you five minutes on a response to a mid-rise to look at some of the crucial areas, sides of hallways, stairwells, fire department connections, standpipe or non-standpipe uh, uh, supplied. What we're looking at, building construction as well, taking that into consideration and jot down a, a tactical plan. It doesn't take you all day. It takes you five minutes. Invest in the time because it's going to pay dividends when you do have a work done. I, I love that. That kind of goes a little more along with exactly my thought process. I'm a big believer in burning down 100 buildings a day when I'm on duty. And when I say that, I'm every building you guys walk into, what if it? And what if it to every possible, even may seem insane, what if it's the roof deck fire? How are we getting water here? Where are we going to position? Let's say we have fire on four. What if? But we arrive and we got somebody trapped on five. What if that is a don't need a train tower? You don't need permission. You don't even get out of service. You can what if train a lot of your incidents on the front end and then build drills around that. What if fires on four? Okay, well hold that doesn't exist here. How many? What's our uh, estimating the stretch? I cannot believe Robson did not say estimate the stretch is a go-to drill. <laughs> I, 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 it is a go-to drill. I just, I'm looking at the time constraints you put us under, tough guy. And again, the, there is when, as I was writing the agenda for this, guys, literally this could be a series by itself. You can almost do just a full podcast on operations when you talk about fires past the single-family dwelling fires. You really, really can. Uh, we didn't even delve into, we hit the, we hit the wording, but we never even delved into uh, where you start getting into the studios and the reconfigures and um, remod jobs, all those. That's a whole other element to this, these, uh, these challenges you guys are going to face. 
at the end of the day, and this is how I'm going to do my closeout for this as we're getting near the end here, go look at your district. If you want to be a good alter, you want to be a good operator, you want to be a good firefighter, you have to get off the couch and go look at your district and take advantage of every alarm you have and see what if this happens and be prepared for that. And then you go back and look at your bulk bed. Do you have a true bulk bed or do you have 200 feet of two, deuce and a half reconnected with your rear bed and then 8,000 feet of five inch? Because everybody loves five inch. And sports, I think we're seeing a trend to get away, go back away from that right now. But my best recommendation is my closeout comment is you have to go burn down these buildings right now. And long before they're on fire, go burn them down now with your company. Burn them down with your chiefs. Burn them down with your uh, surrounding jurisdiction and determine what you're going to do on the front end, not the night that you got fire blown out two windows. Or I love the comments been said twice, the nothing showing fire that turns out to be the fire of a career, but nothing showing on arrival. I love that we brought that up. So uh, we're, I'm going to go to each person for a final closeout. Last thing. Uh, myself, Jimmy, Stevie, and a, a host of just incredible instructors. I, I think Rowett's there in another capacity. Uh, we'll be at Great Lake, Great Lake Hot. That's in in Michigan, and then we're going to be at Firemanship with Cody and Fire Nuggets in July. And this is what our class is all about. This is what we're going to be drilling on, hands on classes. Lift is still. I think there's still a couple couple and spots at Lift. He's going to do a smaller version of this at Lift Conference as well. So there are some opportunities in your area, and again, you can always hit us up about that, Jimmy. Your final last drive homes of all the stuff we talked about. Your driving uh, home point for us from my buddy Captain Bill Gustin. Stretching hose line is the most fundamental duty that the public expects from you. Love that. Right. So do that train and pre-plan. I well, it, it's better to be embarrassed on a training ground than it is to be embarrassed at the real deal or the real fire over there. Take the time, invest in yourself and your men, invest in these buildings and the public we serve. Outstanding. Bro. Uh to take what, what we've talked about, we've we've said it a few times, Steve said it, everyone's kind of said the same thing of don't just take what we're saying as the gospel or what you read as the gospel, make sure it's right. But also don't just take it once you feel that it's factual and say, that's the only way to do it. You have to take what we say or what you read and apply it to you. Go back and look at your fire department, your staffing, your hose, your rigs and your buildings you're going to respond to and see what's going to work for you and take what works and use it. Don't just try to be another fire department or say, this is how they do it here. You have to find how it's going to work for you with your people, your equipment, your operational guidelines, your chiefs, and your buildings. So take it, go back, and look at your city, truly deeply look in your city, your operations, and see how it will work for you. And do what's going to make change that improves your operations and not just change to make change. Oh, great point. Love that final little little cap right in there. Uh, Lieutenant Robinson. Yeah, you know, I, I think the big thing is control what you can control. You you need to control what you can control. And what do I where where do I want to go with that is take away the knowns. We know certain things have to happen in a certain order on any of these fires. Control what you can control and become the best you can be 
at the things we can control because there's going to be so many curveballs that we don't control. We have to be able to, to, to position. We have to be able to stretch. We have to be able to get dressed. We have to be able to do those things that should just be common skills that we do every day, right? Because as soon as you cross that threshold, that control is taken away from us and we're reactionary at that point, right? So we have to be better than good at everything we can control. That, that's my biggest takeaway. And the other thing is get out and learn this stuff. If you're not comfortable with it, you're not familiar with it, look it up, live it. Great right. point, great point. Right. I want to take this opportunity to thank Steve and Jimmy for spending all this time with us today. Uh, we'll, we'll obviously, this, we'll plug this out on social media when we, when we drop this live and all that. So, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for being here with us today, as, as always. Yeah, thanks for your time. Really yeah, thank you, Anthony. Yeah, God bless everyone. Be safe. Thank you. And that will end the show for this time. We'll see everybody soon. Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com. IFSTA is dedicated to advancing firefighting techniques and safety through the creation of our manuals, instructor resources, and student study materials. Our high-quality, technically accurate, and affordable training content has made us a fire service leader. Visit us at ifsta.org for more information.